The sermon text will continue chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 13 through 23. You can find this in um, the Pew Bible, page 822. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. The reality, Lord Jesus, is that on both sides of this pulpit, the space is populated by people who are not worthy in themselves to stoop down and untie the lace of your sandal. So how in the world could we possibly be worthy to speak and to hear your word? There's only one answer to that question. Our adequacy is not from ourselves, but it is from you and in you. Will you protect us on both sides of this pulpit, Lord, from following in Peter's footsteps and setting our minds on the things of man rather than on the things of God. And we know that as you answer that prayer, the cross, your cross, will get bigger and bigger and bigger in our field of vision. And we pray especially this morning for those who have not yet made the confession to you that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray now that you would have great mercy upon them and that your blessing would be upon them. And we pray that you would save today. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we're going to be in this passage for a number of weeks. Uh, it is incredibly important uh, to understanding not just Matthew's gospel, but there's all kinds of important uh, features in this text. And that's one of the reasons why I felt comfortable uh, accelerating our pace through chapter 15. Um, it really is key to see this opposition that Peter sets up in, uh, or excuse me, that Jesus sets up in verse 23, the difference, the radical difference between setting our minds on the things of man and setting our mind, our minds on the things of God. And if we set our minds on the things of man, the cross will not be important. That's what that means in context. Setting our minds on the things of man leads to crosslessness. Setting our minds on the things of God, according to Jesus, means that the cross, understanding what it is and what God has done, why the cross, why the cross, 
that that cross-fullness, if you will, that cross-centeredness is at the heart of what it means to have a mind that is set on the things of God. And so what we want to do this morning together is to worship on both sides of this pulpit. And that will mean thinking Jesus' thoughts after him, Jesus' thoughts about his cross after him, and following and feeling Jesus' feelings about his cross after him. That's what it will mean to worship Christ this morning. So what I want to do this morning, you can tell from the sermon title, I've got a single theme that I want us to think about from this passage. We're not going to, I just, I abandoned all hope that I was going to be able to fit those, uh, you know, 11 verses into one or two messages. So I'm very comfortable just zeroing in this morning on a single theme. And guess what? A single theme that comes out of one word in the passage. One word. And that single theme is the necessity of the cross. Why the cross? That's the question I want us to think about. And that single theme comes out of one word in our text. That one word is the word must in verse 21. And it's utterly important to see that word and what it means. It's not as simple as you might think it is. It's a little obscured by the style of most of our English translations because you can see it in the ESV. It's also true in the NAS. I think it's also true in the NIV. That that must, so you've got that must for Jesus, you know, from that time, look at verse 21 with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, in English, it looks like the must controls, or at least there's some ambiguity about whether or not the must controls only the going to Jerusalem. But there's zero ambiguity in the Greek here. And I don't like to talk about the Greek with you because your Bible's sufficient, okay? But it makes a difference here. In the Greek, that word must controls four verbs. It controls each of the verbs. It controls the going, the suffering, the being killed, and the being raised. So that the way this passage really reads is... From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and must be killed and on the third day must be raised. So it's very emphatic. And when we get to this point in Matthew's gospel, this intersection between Peter's confession which for at least a minute, at least for about six verses, we think is the high point of the gospel. Peter's confession, this intersection between Peter's confession in verse 16 and then Jesus' explanation of his mission in verse 21, this is the heart of Matthew's gospel, both literally and figuratively. Everything up to this point has been flowing toward it. Everything has been carrying us toward this disclosure, this uh, confession of Jesus's identity, and then Jesus's explanation of his his mission. Everything has been flowing toward it, and everything uh, that follows flows out of it. And so it's a little surprising to see what Jesus does. I don't know if you were jarred at all by the flow of the text, because you think, well, this is the greatest thing ever. Peter's finally gotten it right. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's representing all the disciples there when he says it. They get it. And so in verse 17, you see Jesus come back with this amazing statement that we'll look at next week. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, yes, you got it. So you think we're off to the races. And then there's verse 20. which is a little surprising. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Huh? 
The reason for that is very important because when the people heard the word Christ, they thought of triumph in only uh, one particular dimension, no suffering. Immediate vindication, immediate defeat, visible, manifest of all the enemies of God's people. In other words, the people had a definition of Christ that was not God's definition. And so Jesus prohibits the telling of anyone that he's the Christ until he fills that title and office up with its true content. You see, Peter's, Peter and the disciples, they have his title. They have his office correctly. But what they don't understand, they, they, they've correctly identified him as the person of the Messiah. But what they don't have yet, because Jesus has not given it to them, is the filling up of that person with the content, the God-ordained content of the Messiah's mission. And the Messiah's mission, as we see from verse 21, is defined by a fourfold necessity. And that is something that flesh and blood cannot reveal to itself. It is a very important issue because you can tell. I mean, verse 20 is all the more amazing that Jesus would prohibit the disciples from telling anyone that he's the Christ, uh, particularly given how wrong the people are. They're so wrong about him. Look, when he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13, and the answer for, in verse 14, well, some say you're John the Baptist. These are the, these are the, the best opinions of Jesus. Right? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, you're just a prophet. Now, that's a big error. And yet Jesus thinks that there would be an even bigger error if the name Christ was attached to him publicly apart from or separated from a clear understanding of what God's plan was for the Christ, which is that he must go to Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, and he must be publicly under suffering at the hands of the leaders of Israel. He must be judicially uh, executed by the leaders of Jerusalem. And he must be raised. That's the content. And it's not easy. And so what I want to think about with you this morning is that must. Because if we don't understand the must in verse 21 accurately, we won't understand Christianity. It's that important. So three headings this morning. I know there's a long introduction, but hang in there. Three, three, uh, three points about the must. One, what it doesn't mean. Secondly, what it does mean. And then we're going to have three uh, reflections on, uh, pastoral reflections on the cross's necessity. So what it doesn't mean, what the cross is not, point one. And what that must shows us is that the cross is not an absolute necessity. Now that I have your attention, because I know you didn't expect me to say that, let me explain. There's a rumor that is widely circulated, a rumor about God, a false rumor about God that is widely circulated, and is eagerly embraced, and Christian pulpits uh, uh, propagate it, and Christian congregations embrace it, and people in the public media assume that Christianity is defined by it, and the rumor is false, and it slanders God. And do you know what the rumor is? The rumor that I'm talking about is the rumor that it is God's job to forgive that it is his duty to forgive. That the must, if you will, of verse 21 is the must of an obligation. 
that Jesus must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things, must be killed and must be raised on the third day because it's God's job, it's his duty to forgive. That's what it means to be God, the rumor goes. And nothing could be further from the truth. Friends, if we tell the story of the cross in such a way that it is the duty of God rather than the beauty of God, we've turned the universe upside down. If we describe the cross as the fruit of God's duty rather than the fruit of his beauty, we have slandered God. If we describe the cross as Jesus fulfilling his duty to us, rather than his freely spending and pouring out his beauty for us, we have turned the universe on its head. Because what it means to be God is that you are unconstrained and unrestrained by any force or obligation or debt that is external to you. It is utterly different from us, and this is why it is so natural for us to think of God in terms of being bound by duties from the outside that are imposed upon him externally, because that's how we live. But to be God, means that you are utterly free. You are no one's debtor. What it means to be God is to preside over a universe in which there are no corners that you can be backed into. What it means to be God is that you are never trapped against your will. Think about what the Bible teaches us about how utterly free and unconstrained God is. I was thinking about these texts on Friday, and they're so simple, but they're so profound in their implications. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 136 or 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Do you know anyone like that? We would like, we think we would like for that to be true of us, but we face obstacles and limitations all the time. You know, I really want to be in the All-Star game, and I really want to be sitting on a fastball, and I want to yank it over the center field wall. It ain't going to happen unless it's the wiffle ball all-stars. But you see, the Bible just relentlessly, relentlessly, this is so unnatural for us to think this way about God, that God, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all the deep, wherever, whatever, whenever, that's what it means to be God. He's not constrained. He's not limited. His back is never pushed into a corner against his will. Never, ever, ever. So to speak of the cross or to think of the must in verse 21 as God's duty is to utterly misunderstand not just the cross, but what it means to be God. He is God, and there is no other. He declares the end from the beginning and declares from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is no restraint on him. That is what it means to be God. And he is no one's debtor. I've told you before that one of the verses I have on a post-it on my window above my desk is Job 41.11, and the reason it's there is because I forget this all the time. And that's where, where the Lord says to Job, Who has given to me that I should repay him? For whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. As God saying, I don't owe anybody anything. So if there is an obligation 
that flows from God to men, it is always a self-imposed, freely self-imposed obligation. It's a beautiful thing. So what that means, friends, when we get to verse 21, what those truths about God mean. See, do you notice? You notice you, I'm sure the effect of those things upon you is exactly what it is to me. It just it starts to level me down, right? And it starts to raise God higher in my imagination. He is so great. He is so great. And it is he who is at the center of the gospel. And so what this means, friends, what that must in verse 21 means, the truth that Scripture is celebrating, that Jesus is pouring into his disciples is this, that, that, that it's just absolutely amazing, right? The forgiveness of sin and the sinners, God's forgiveness of the sinners guilty of those sins is not God's duty, and it's not his job. In order for him to be God, you can't say that it's his duty or his job to forgive. We must never think of the must in verse 21 as teaching or implying or suggesting that the sovereign God has a duty to save sinners. The fact that we are liable to God's eternal judgment and the punishment of hell because of our sins does not make him responsible to save us or to make heaven available to us. If it is available, and it is in the gospel, it is because it is all the act and gift of God's heart, not his duty. Once he binds himself freely because of the wonder of his own heart, then he makes it his duty. But not until then. Friends, if you don't see it that way, or until you see it that way, until you feel it that way, until you look at the cross and are utterly shed or shorn of all your sense of entitlement, until every cancerous, distorting lie that says, that's exactly what I deserve, a rescue from God, until you see that that is undeserved, you will necessarily place yourself at the center of the gospel. And you will think of the gospel and the work of Christ as essentially the happy ending that has been provided by God for your story instead of the wonder of God doing for you freely, graciously what you had no right to. And it's only when you get to that point that the cross begins to get big and beautiful. So in this must in verse 21, what Jesus is not teaching is that his cross, his death, is an absolute necessity. Well, what is he teaching? He's teaching that the cross, his cross, point two, is what I'll call the unnecessary absolute necessity. Now, think, think about it with me. If the must in verse 21 means that the cross was absolutely necessary in the sense that God could not be God apart from the mission of Jesus, if that's how we read that must, that in order for God to be God, he had to save sinners, he had to save sinners, he was obligated to save sinners, if that's how we read the cross, then the message of Jesus' mission is very different from what the Bible says it is. If that's where we start and we think of the cross as the duty of God, then what happens is that Jesus' mission is only about the duty of God owed to sinners rather than the beauty of God bestowed upon and for sinners in Jesus Christ. 
And it's that second reality, that second wonder that Jesus' mission, the mustness of Jesus' mission, is that it is about the beauty of God in Jesus Christ, not being owed to sinners, but being bestowed upon sinners. The cross is not the debt of God's heart. It is his desire. And boy, that makes a difference. The cross was an unnecessary, absolute necessity. Let me explain. What verse 21 describes in that must, that's a must that grows out of the invincible, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient love, covenant love of the eternal God. That must, 100% of that must arises from a story, from within the story of God's own heart. 100% of it. It's a compulsion of his own heart. It's a constraint of his own heart. It reflects this plan that Scripture describes in various places and in various, with various images. The book of life, which was written before the foundation of the world. The lamb who would be slain. And the book that tells the story of the, from before the foundation of the world of the lamb who would be slain and whose names would be written in that book. It's about... It, it, it's, this must is, is so beautiful when you think about it as purely the product and understand it as purely the fruit of God's own heart that it, that it was not, the cross was not absolutely necessary in order for him to be him, but it was absolutely necessary for us to be his. And therefore... The wonder of the cross, my friends, is that what was not a necessity for God, God made his own necessity. Freely, lavishly, that what was not a necessity for him, but was a necessity for us, he bound himself freely to make his own necessity and to send his son. That's what that must is about. You know what that means? That means that that must is the interpretive key for everything that Jesus describes in verse 21. See, once God had had decided freely from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people to himself, there was only one way to do it. So it was strictly unnecessary But once God made our necessity his necessity, there was only one way to do it. A man would have to answer for the sins of men. There was only one way to do it, penal substitution. Someone would have to bear the penalty that God's justice rightly was owed because of the sins of men. But those who committed the sins that gave rise to the penalty could not be sustained in themselves under the bearing of that penalty. And so there had to be a substitute. If Once God had decided to save sinners, there was no way to do it except providing a way that would pay and satisfy the penalty the sins of men had earned because they had flouted God's righteousness, and yet there must be <clears throat> payment through a substitute who would be able to withstand that punishment and also, excuse me, on behalf of sinners, fulfill the law of God positively. That must was an absolute necessity once God had decided to save. The cross was an absolute necessity. There is no salvation 
for men apart from the cross. There is no reconciliation with God apart from, the, apart from the cross. There is no peace with God. There is no true knowledge of God. There is no membership in the family of God <clears throat> apart from the cross. It was absolutely necessary that the Son of Man be killed that he suffer many things, that he be rejected, and that he be raised on the third day. Friends, what that must means is that every event Jesus is describing in verse 21, the going to Jerusalem, where he'll be rejected and mocked, where he'll be the subject of a kangaroo trial, where he'll be scourged, where he will be accused of blasphemy, where he'll be spit upon, where the crown of thorns will be pushed down upon his head, where he will restrain himself from calling on legions of angels to rise to his defense. His judicial execution, the spikes being driven through his hands and his feet, his asphyxiation on the cross, that every one of those things in 21 that are being described, those aren't just things that are going to happen to him. That's not what Jesus is describing. Of course, there are things that are going to happen to him, but they're more than that. That must, it means that they're more than that. They're not just events that are going to befall Jesus. It means that must transforms those events into his gifts to his people. That every one, of those, every one of those events, every aspect of his, his unjust suffering and every aspect of his penalty-bearing suffering, even his death, that those are not just things that are going to happen to him. Those in reality, <clears throat> that must tells us, are his gifts to his people. Now that's amazing. Jesus is, in effect, saying to his disciples, and he doesn't just do it once. I mean, the sense of the Greek is he has to keep showing this to his disciples. And, you know, that makes total sense to me because I've been a Christian for 32 years, and I feel like more of an amateur at the foot of that cross than I ever have in my entire Christian life. And welcome to Christianity, friends. Why do you think Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, I need my water, excuse me. Why do you think Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I was about to take a sip right before I told you what was in 1 Corinthians 2.2. Why do you think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, don't we get over that? Like in the first gospel presentation? No. No, we don't. And so what Jesus is doing for his disciples, friends, is he is saying, excuse me, he is saying to his disciples, I know what it's going to look like. I want you to be prepared for this. I know what it's going to look like when I go to Jerusalem. I know what you're going to think. It's going to look, every time you see what happens to me, it's going to look like my life is being taken away from me. But I want you to know that I'm giving it away. It's going to look to your naked eye like I am suffering under the judicial decree of the Jews and the Romans. It's going to look like I'm executed by the Romans after being instigated to do it by the Jewish authorities. But let me tell you what the real truth is going to be. And this is what that must mean. That means this, that it's not the Romans or the Jews who are my executioners. My executioner is going to be my father. And it won't be the Romans' sentence of condemnation that I am under. It will be my father's sentence of condemnation that I will be under. It won't be the Romans' judicial decree that's against me. It will be my father's judicial decree against me because I am the lamb 
who gives himself without blemish for the sins of my people. And I want you to know ahead of time, when I tell you that all this must take place, I want you to know ahead of time that every aspect of what is going to befall me will be exactly as I want it to be. I am not indebted to give the cross I desire to give myself on the cross. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. We just sang it. It's exactly as he wants it to be. Friends, the cross is not a corner. That must does not mean that the cross is a corner that Jesus is backed into by our sin. That's the wrong way to read that. That cross, Jesus is saying with that must in verse 21, is not a corner. It's his throne. It's the throne that he has chosen. He picked Golgotha as the place where he, the living God incarnate, would place his throne, where he, would, where he wants his glory, the truth about his kingship, the whole truth about his kingship. He picked Golgotha as the place to put his throne so that the full and whole truth about his kingship could finally be fully known on the earth. That was the place of his choosing. That must, of verse 21 says, I desired that. The only reason that Jesus's shredded back and bleeding back rested against that Roman cross was because he wanted to be there. He chose to be there. The compulsion that carried and kept him there arose 100% from his own heart. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. So let's think together about three Implications of the necessity of Jesus' cross in the time that we have together remaining. And the first one is this, that what we see in this passage is that the cross is the great leveler, the great leveler of all people. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look, it's very interesting in this passage. Geography is a big deal in this passage. In verse 13, Jesus goes with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is a pagan city. There's a lot of stuff we could, we could reflect profitably on related to Caesarea Philippi. For our purposes this morning, it's enough to know it's a pagan city. It's outside of Israel, right? It's a pagan area. You can just tell from the names. Caesarea Philippi. Jesus chooses that place as the place where he will now put the question to his disciples and, and ask, who am I? Outside of Israel, in a pagan area. And then you notice in verse 21, Jesus talks, geography becomes important again because he mentions Jerusalem. Now what's very interesting about that is Jesus is very deliberately drawing an arc that connects these two places with his mission and his ministry. And it's a shocking kind of connection because Caesarea Philippi is a pagan city. Jerusalem is the holy city of Israel. And yet what Jesus is doing is he is essentially putting both those places, with respect to his ministry, he's putting both those places on the same playing field. Now that's shocking. Because what he's effectively saying is that the pious Jews in Jerusalem are going to need my cross no less than the pagans in Caesarea Philippi. They the, the pagans in Caesarea Philippi will need the cross no more than the religious Jews. And so what he's, what he's 
essentially doing very graphically for the disciples is he's saying that my cross, this mustness, part of the mustness of my cross and the necessity of my cross is that my cross is going to level all people before God. It, it levels people before God in two ways. It lowers all people equally and it also raises all people equally. Let's think about the first one, how the cross is the lowering of all people equally. And what I mean by that is this, the implication, not just of this passage, but of Jesus's ministry as a whole, is that all men, and this is a shocking statement that I know is just going to be like a burr in your saddle. But this is what the Bible teaches, okay? And here's what the Bible teaches. All men are morally equal in the sight of God. Burr, burr, burr. And what the cross does is the cross levels all the supposed righteousness of men to be on the same plane. Now, because I know that that bothers you, or at least some of you, let me, let me try to illustrate what I mean. The lowest point on planet Earth is called the Challenger Deep, and it is in the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean, and it is 36,069 feet down. And the highest point on planet Earth is the summit of Mount Everest, which is 29,029 feet. For a total separation distance of 65 some odd thousand feet, roughly 12.3 miles. Now let's imagine that you were standing on the top of Everest and I was there with an adequate oxygen supply uh, in the Challenger Deep. And if we were simply comparing ourselves to each other, you would have roughly 12.3 miles of superiority to crow about relative to me. And I would have to concede the point that you were higher than me. But what if we changed our frame of reference? And what if the question became not who is higher on the planet of Earth, but who is closer to the Andromeda galaxy? Which, for those of you not, not up to speed on that, is about 2.5 million light years away, a veritable hop, skip, and jump in space from us. Well, 2.5 million light years doesn't mean much. It does when you do this. Every light year is 5 trillion miles. Now, does it make any sense for us to argue about who's closer to the Andromeda galaxy, you or me, you from your perch on the top of Everest, me in the Challenger Deep. It makes absolutely no sense. It's totally ridiculous. Because for all practical purposes, it's equally out of reach to both of us. Friends, when you compare Earth to Earth, distances can be seen. But when you compare Earth to Heaven... The distances that are significant on earth make no difference in this frame of reference. And what the cross says, the first message that God preaches from the pulpit of his son's cross is that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the cross lowers all people equally. But the wonder of the cross is that it also raises all people equally. Jesus says in John chapter 12, it's such a, that, that must of the cross produces a salvation that is sufficient for any. And John, uh, John 12, in John 12 verse 32, Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up, and he's talking about being lifted up on the cross, I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. In other words, my death will be sufficient to bring any into the kingdom of heaven. And so the cross, Jesus is saying through this geographical uh, lesson he gives his disciples, he's saying the cross is the leveler of all 
people, an equal justification for all people, an equal pardon for all people, an equal adoption as God's children for all people, an equal inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all peoples. Jesus is saying that that must entails leveling all the earth and raising all and all who will come to him equally as children of God. An awesome king. Secondly, we learn that all crossless logic is satanic logic. This is, the, this is the part of this passage that everybody loves, right? When Peter rebukes Jesus. Brent could hardly contain himself this morning before this. He says, I get to read it. <clears throat> Peter hears Jesus' explanation of the must. In verse 21, and his first reaction is not to fall down on his face in wonder, but to say, no, 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 no. I need to rebuke you for that must, Jesus, because that's not what the Christ is about. Suffering, rejection, you're the king. See, what Peter wants is he wants a crossless Jesus. And a lot of people want a crossless Jesus. A lot of people want a Jesus who isn't a sin bearer. They want a Jesus who's a great teacher, uh, who's, who's, a, who's a cuddly coach, who's a morally wise person, who's an example. But what they don't want is a Jesus whose cross confronts them with the reality of their sin and debt to God that they cannot pay, that was so serious that no other solution was available except the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity to a life of suffering and perfect righteousness and death. I totally get why you want to cross this Jesus, but Jesus comes back and says, listen, that's the way Satan talks. Jesus has heard that logic before. He heard it in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, make those stones become bread. I'll give you, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, I'll give you what your father has promised you and I'll let you do an end around that cross. Jesus has heard that logic before. He doesn't rebuke Peter in return, because Peter has first rebuked him, he rebukes, Jesus rebukes Peter because of his crossless thinking, which he says, by calling Peter Satan, is satanic. And make no mistake about it, friends. <clears throat> there is no Jesus to be known, to be loved, or to be rescued by who doesn't come with a cross. And if you want a Jesus without a cross, you need to understand this, that your thinking and your feeling about the cross are in perfect alignment with God's enemy. What it means to set your mind on the things of God is to be utterly persuaded, utterly astonished, utterly grateful for the necessity of the cross. Point three, Jesus is not a robot. He's not a machine. The logic of the cross is hard for him. Look at what he says to Peter in verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. Now notice this next sentence. It's the next sentence I want to focus on with you. You are a hindrance to me. Some of your translations say um, stumbling block. And that's a, in the ESV, the hindrance, and in both the ESV and the NAS and the NIV, whether it's hindrance or stumbling block, those are both uh, metaphors that are trying to interpret uh, what the underlying word means. And what the underlying word describes literally is the bait stick on a trap. Now that's very interesting because it ought to surprise us, at first blush it ought to surprise us that Jesus says to Peter, 
you're a hindrance to me. How in the world? I mean, Peter knows, Jesus knows that Peter's not Satan, but he knows that Peter's logic is the same logic as Satan's, <clears throat> the crosslessness about it. But think about it. This is the Son of God who's incarnate saying to Peter very urgently, not just you're thinking crosslessly and therefore satanically, but when you speak that way, Peter, you are putting a bait stick in front of me. Now, you know what that means? That is a very precious window that Jesus is giving to us into his own heart. Do you know what that means? That means that crossless, Jesus is feeling the pull of crosslessness. He's feeling the temptation. See, I go for a walk a lot of times in, uh, in the neighborhoods around where we live, and I pray. And sometimes I will see those, uh, those rat traps. They don't want you to see that they're rat traps. You know, those green nondescript boxes that don't say rat trap on them. And I know there's goodies in there. But they're rat goodies. I am never drawn to get down on my knees and to say, hey, what's in there? You know why? Because I'm not a rat. For Jesus to say to Peter, you're putting a bait stick in front of me, means that the bait on that stick is attractive to him in a certain sense. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a hindrance. Friends, we might have thought that Jesus' temptations were over in chapter 4 when he left the wilderness. This reminds us that they have never ended. And the, and the presence and the pressure of the crossless path has been weighing upon Jesus' heart and it will continue to be a burden that he carries through Gethsemane and all the way to the cross and he will fight through it and he will triumph over it. Why? To be true to his name you remember why he was called Jesus? The angel comes to Joseph and says, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He must fight through the temptation of crosslessness in order to triumph for us so that he might save us from our sins. What a beautiful window into the heart of Jesus, bought by such love. Our lives are not our own. Let's pray. Thank you. for this must. Thank you for your must, Lord Jesus. We pray that your must and your faithfulness to it would beget a must in our lives to rise and to follow you all the days of our lives. We pray in your name.